The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Let's, we're going to look this morning at the, this is it for First Thessalonians, people. This will be the final message. Uh, we're finishing the book. I really don't like ending books. I don't like beginning books. <laughs> I like being somewhere in the middle there. I'm comfortable, okay? But this is, this is fine because we're really not ending. We're just moving on to 2 Thessalonians and go through that. So it's not, a, not really an ending. But this morning we're going to be looking at this final section that runs from verse 23 through 28. Verse 23 says this, For may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Now the focus on this verse is on the complete sanctification of the believer at the coming of the Lord. The God of salvation, the God of peace is the one who is going to carry out this work. He says, now may the God of peace. The word may here is the Greek, it's a a form called the optative in the Greek which simply means it expresses a wish. So this is kind of a, a prayer wish. Hey, this is, this is what I hope happens. This, I'm praying that this happens. It, it's a prayer wish for the believers, complete sanctification at the coming of the Lord. Now the Greek text literally says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you. And Himself is emphatic. It's the intensive use of atos. And it suggests Himself and no other. This sanctification is a work of God alone, and that's what he is stressing here. He calls him the God of peace. This is a common phrase in the closing of Paul's letters. Yahweh is a God of peace. It is his actions in Christ that brings us into peace with himself. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. We who were once enemies are at peace with God because of Christ. Now Paul's prayer wish here is that God Himself would sanctify you completely at the coming of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. <clears throat> now what does he mean by sanctify them completely? Well, the word sanctify is from the Greek word hagiadzo, and it means to make holy, to purify, to consecrate, to set apart. So let's talk about sanctification. First, I want to share with you the understanding of the traditional view of sanctification, which I don't agree with much at all, okay? But I'll point that out as we look at it. It is taught that sanctification is the activity of God that liberates the Christian from the power of sin. Sanctification imparts the righteousness of God to the man Traditionally, sanctification is categorized into three aspects. The first one being positional sanctification. Now, this is that state of holiness imputed to the Christian at the moment of their conversion to Christ. This is positional sanctification. In other words, if you're in Christ, you're holy. Okay? Look at Paul writing, writes to the, first, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Yeshua, saints by calling. Let me ask you something, believers. Were the Corinthians holy? <laughs> You're hesitating. Do this. <laughs> well, he says you are sanctified. Hagiazo. In Christ Yeshua, saints by Hagios. You're holy. Listen, Paul's writing that he knows how messed up they are. He knows he's going to get into it later. You guys are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. You're doing everything wrong. He knows that. But he starts out by, he doesn't start out by saying, listen, you guys are not even acting like you're saved. Or you're, I'm questioning if you even are saved. No, he says, sanctified in Christ, saints by calling. Then he spends the rest of the letter saying, you got to live up to who you are, guys. Okay? Notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God is the one who has set them apart for salvation. So positional sanctification is synonymous with being saved. And I agree with the traditional view here. When you trust Christ, you're set apart for God. You're His. That's your position. It doesn't mean you change the way you act. You change your position. All right? You're no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. All right? Secondly, we have progressive sanctification. Now, traditionally, this refers to the process in our daily lives, which we are being conformed to the image of Christ. It's the process of becoming what we are in position. And this involves putting off old habits, lying, stealing, backbiting, putting on Christ-like qualities, honesty, mercy, love. A text that is often used to support this view is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this is talking about progressive sanctification, but it has nothing to do with us. It's talking about the transition saints. Those who lived between the first and the second advent of Christ were being transformed from one glory to another glory. They were moving from Old Covenant glory to New Covenant glory. The context of this chapter is the two covenants. If we back up to verse 9, he says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the Old Covenant, it's a ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, that's a New Covenant, must far exceed in glory. So there are two glories, and they're moving from one glory to another because they were growing. This was a period of growth where the kingdom had begun and it was advancing and the body was maturing. When the bodies mature, the Lord moves in and He dwells with the believers. But they were, it was a growing process at this time. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Christ. He says they are being built 
It's a present tense thing. At that time, they were being built. They're living stones. Now, you know, you ever seen a living stone? Well, he's using metaphors because this is a house being built for God. And we're the stones, the the first century believers were the stones, and they're being built into this spiritual house. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, in whom the whole structure, this house for God, being joined together, grows into a holy temple. In the Lord, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They're being built. This This temple was being built during this transition period as a home for God. So during the transition period, the Old Covenant was fading away. The book of Hebrews is written around AD 64 to 67. And at that time, the Old Covenant is still in effect. They're still taking their animals to the temple. They're still sacrificing. The priesthood's there. They're all going on like they always had, very soon to be shut down. But it was ready the author of Hebrews said to pass away. Hebrews 8.13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. <clears throat> so that old covenant was becoming, in the process, it's growing old, it's about ready to vanish away, and just a few years later, it vanished. It was shut down, that was it. Never sacrificed since. So during this transition, The church is growing in its maturity. They're being built for a dwelling place of God. And during the transition period, the church is growing into the image of Christ. And that's speaking about position, not practice. This growth was completed in AD 70 when the Lord returned and consummated the new covenant. So progressive sanctification... It's something that happened to the first century saints, not us. They're growing in their positional holiness. They're growing into the image of Christ. But let me say this. I believe that we, today, us, you and I, are to be growing in holiness, practical holiness. I believe that as we walk with the Lord, we should be maturing We should be growing and and abiding in Christ and living and walking like He walked, demonstrating to the world whose children we are by the way we live, by the way we talk. So I think that's important for us. As Christians, we grow. But we're not growing into Christ's image positionally because we're complete in Christ. We're just growing in our life. So you got positional sanctification, which I agree with, progressive, which I That was for that time, and that time only. But again, the church today will still say, oh yeah, this is going on right now. They see us still in the transition period. Instead of it being 40 years, it's a couple thousand years of transition. It's a long, long, long transition. It's a long end times. Matter of fact, the end times are longer than the whole beginning of the thing and the started. So I don't don't know how that works out, okay? And then we have ultimate sanctification. This is said to be the state of holiness that we will not attain to in this life, but will realize when we're in the presence of God. Okay? And 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we'll see Him as He is. So they say, see, when Christ comes, and when, you, when the second coming happens, then that'll be ultimate sanctification, we'll be like Christ. 
The word appears here is fenerao. It's the same word that John uses earlier in 228 to talk about the second coming. Here it refers to the return of Yeshua in the future from the first century reader's perspective. We could translate this at, but at the second coming, we'll be made like him. So when the second coming happened, John said, when he appears, we shall be like him. Now remember who the we here is, okay? John's not talking to us. He's talking to the first century saints, and he tells them that when the second coming happens, they will be made like Christ. So what did John mean by his words, we shall be like him at the second coming? I think he's referring here to ultimate sanctification, which is having Christ's righteousness. It's being complete in Christ. At the second coming, all believers receive the righteousness of Christ. And the nature of their likeness to Christ was to be the likeness in respect to righteousness. We possess righteousness. Now, what I see Paul saying here to the Thessalonians, he said, we'll sanctify you completely at the coming of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Paul is saying here that God is going to sanctify the Thessalonians completely at the parousia. That is when the body of Christ will be matured. That is when the new temple will be complete. Notice what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul only sees two kinds of righteousness. Self-righteousness, which leads to damnation, and God's righteousness that's given through faith, which equals salvation. This is the righteousness that Paul wanted to have, that which comes by faith in Christ. This is speaking of justification by faith alone. Now, I think that we understand that when we trust Christ, we receive His righteousness. As Christians, we are as righteous as Christ is. You've got to understand that. If you can't accept that, you, don't under, you think you have some righteousness to get you in there. No, it's Christ's righteousness, and we're as righteous as Him. You can say it. It's not blasphemy. It's true. Okay? Well, I'm as righteous as Christ. I might not live it. I might not act like it. That's my position before God. And that's why I have standing, okay? We stand complete in Christ. He took our sin. He gave us His righteousness. And Paul's next statement, when you understand this, Paul's next statement can be confusing because Paul says, not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on to make Him my own because Christ Yeshua has made me His own. All right? Paul says, I don't have it yet. What? Did he not have that he wanted? Well, the Greek word here for attained is lambano. And it means to receive, to grasp, to seize, to acquire. Paul says, I don't have it yet. What is it that he didn't have? Well, the verb lambano is transitive, but the object's not expressed. So is it the resurrection that he mentioned in verse 11 that he has not attained to yet? I think that's part of it, but it's more than that. And verses 4 through 11 are a unit dealing with justification. And verse 9 is the key. He says, I want to be found in Him with a righteousness that comes from God. I think that what Paul is saying here is that his justification had not yet been consummated. Thus, he was not yet blameless in holiness, in his position before Christ. Now, that might not fit your theology, but it fits the context of what Paul's talking about. 
Now, as a side note here, let me add that, because I thought this was interesting, the manuscript, you know, we have tons of different manuscripts, okay? We don't have the original autographs. We have tons of copies, and they're labeled different numbers and stuff. Well, P46, manuscript P46, and D, um, with Irenaeus Latin translation, and Ambrositer insert this clause in this verse, they say, have already been justified, instead of, I'm already perfect. They stick that in. And I, I think that's interesting that they do that, okay? Paul was saying that I am not already attained. I haven't yet been justified. Now, we know that Yeshua took our sin and bore the penalty on the cross, and He gives us His righteousness. And we've been declared righteous by God for all eternity. It will never be reversed, never be changed. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to our account. Justification involves the imputation of righteousness. But, at the time of Paul's writing, righteousness was still a hope. They're in this transition period where things are being worked out, and they don't have it yet. Now, you might think, well, didn't Paul and the New Testament saints already have the righteousness of God? Yes and no. Okay? This is the period called the already but not yet. So they have some things, but not in completed form. Now, you'll hear, if you're reading commentaries or listening to the theologians or scholars, they talk about the already but not yet. The thing they don't know is they think we're still in it. It's a 2,000 year already but not yet. It's a long, long process, okay? And so their timing's off, and so everything gets off. The futuristic perspective of God's righteousness is clearly expressed by Paul in the New Testament. Or if you look at Galatians 5.5, he says, But through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So they're waiting for something. What are they waiting for? Waiting for the hope. We're waiting for righteousness. Listen, if righteousness was already a fulfilled or completed event, Paul made a big mistake in making it a matter of hope. Because I think you know this, but... You don't hope for what you have, right? I mean, something wrong with you if you're hoping for what you have. This is where most of the churches today, they're hoping for something they already have. Instead of enjoying what they have, they're just hoping they get it, all right? Look what Paul says in Romans. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. I have it, don't hope for it anymore. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When I was at sea with the Navy, I had pictures of Kathy and the kids pasted all over the bottom of the bunk in front of me, and I'd get in bed, and all these pictures would be up there. I don't have those at the house anymore. There's no pictures like that, you know, because I'm living there. I'm not hoping for that anymore. I have it. And that's what we have to understand. Righteousness has been completed now, but for them it was a hope. Who hopes for what he sees? He says, they're waiting for it. And that's what Paul says in Galatians. We're waiting for the hope. That's what they're waiting for. It's the same thing. You don't wait for something that you have. You enjoy it. But Paul also also talks as though it was a present possession. In Romans 4, 5, he says, "...until one who does not work but believes in him..." who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So did Paul have Christ's righteousness 
or was it still future to him? Yes. He had it, but it's still future to him. You're saying, well, how can that be? How can you have it and not have it? Well, here's what you have to understand, and here's where most people miss this. We live in a different time period than Paul did, a different age. Paul lived in what the Bible called the last days. They were the last days, not of the earth. They were the last days of the old covenant. And those last days began at Pentecost with the coming of the church, the birth of the church, and they ended at AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. So from Pentecost to Holocaust, 40-year period where things are working out in this transition. We live in what the Bible calls the age to come. Most people read the Bible and they talk about the age to come, they think it's still out there and it's still future. The age to come is the new covenant age and it came in its completion at 70 A.D. And this 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust was a time of transition. We're moving from the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant's fading away, the Hebrew writer said. The New Covenant is coming into being. It's a transition. The New Covenant had been inaugurated but not consummated. It was a time of already but not yet. We can also see this in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 8 he says, For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. You've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So Paul says, you have it. It seems like he's saying redemption is complete. We got it. Yet later in the same chapter, Paul writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Yeshua himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. So he says, this whole thing is growing. The temple's not completed yet. And the present tense verb here, along with the preceding participle, shows that the continuance of the growth process, and it indicates a living organism that's increasing. And this is not the future tense looking forward to some eschatological temple. It's the present tense dealing with the present temple that is not finished but is continuing to grow. And the Greek word for temple here is nas, which denotes the inter-sanctuary, the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. All right, It's not the word heros, which would be the temple with its porches and outbuilding. It's we're the dwelling place of God. We're the holy of holies. We're sacred ground, believers. Then Paul goes on to say, being built together into a dwelling place. For God by the Spirit. See, this ongoing process results in a temple that God dwells in. The verb is present indicative with the tense again, indicating the continuance of the building. The process was still occurring. But the clear blessing of the new covenant, and this is what so many people miss, the clear blessing, because most Christians would say, we're in the new covenant. What's the blessing of the new covenant? That God would dwell with His people. That's the blessing of the new covenant. Look at Revelation 21, 1 through 3. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. 
They will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. This is the blessing of the New Covenant. The New Jerusalem is the New Covenant, according to Galatians 4, 24-26. So Paul tells the Ephesian believers that they're being built into a dwelling place of God. It was a process. It was taking place, but at that time it's still unfulfilled. So ultimate sanctification is the completion of salvation and receiving immortality. For the first century saints, this happened at the second coming, and it didn't happen before. They were waiting for that consummation. For us, it happens at salvation. See, for believers who live past AD 70, all of these happen at salvation, except for progressive sanctification. That was something strictly for the transition saints, So this is what we got. And for us, we are positionally and ultimately sanctified the moment we trust Christ. We share His rights. We we are complete in Him. There's nothing we have to add later, nothing we have to get. We're complete. Now notice that Paul prays that they would be sanctified completely. The emphasis here is on the word completely, which is the adjective holitales. And this word occurs only here in the New Testament. And holitales is a compound from holos, which means entire, and telos, which means end. Its basic connotation is wholly attaining the end, reaching the intended goal. It signifies complete in reference to degree or amount from the standpoint of the aim or design. That's it. I want you to be finished complete all of it. Paul says in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is ultimate sanctification, to be conformed in the Christ's image. That's what He predestined that to happen. They would be conformed. And that confirmation, that conforming was taking place during the transition. Paul says that what is to be sanctified completely, he says, your whole spirit, soul, and body. The adjective whole appears only here and in James 1.4 in the entire New Testament and conveys the quality of being complete or entire, similar to the word completely of the previous clause. It's the idea, I want you to be whole, total, complete, finished, done. Now, This verse here is the classic verse for those who argue that men and women are composed of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. They'd be considered a trichotomist. Okay, this is dealing with the nature of man, the makeup of man. What is man made of? Well, he's body, soul, and spirit. This is the verse to go to. Problem is, this is the only verse you can go to, okay, to support a trichotomy view. It's the only place in the Pauline letters where Paul uses these three terms to describe human nature. Trichotomists have suggested that the spirit is a sort of Godward consciousness, whereas the soul is an earthward consciousness. Okay, so they're they're trying to give you a function for the spirit and soul. The problem is that can't be sustained in terms of the usage of pneuma or suke, which are the Greek terms for these. You know, spirit is pneuma, soul is suke. Paul does not indicate that the spirit and soul are two substances that can be separated. All right, you got, and the way, the way we understand this is nowhere in Scripture are they separated. 
In other words, you can't find a text of Scripture that separates them and says, okay, this is what the Spirit does, and this is what the soul does. You can't find that. It's not there. Nothing in Scripture that dissects them and tells you this is their function. The distinction between soul and spirit is not precise. It's not technical. For example, in Luke, Mary uses the term in Hebrew synonymous poetry when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in my God. See, the parallelism here shows that soul and spirit, they're synonymous. You can't, you know, break it down. This one does this, this one does that. Now, that's a trichotomous view. Now, the more commonly held view is made up of people who see the body as two parts. You've got a body and you've got a soul or the immaterial part, which is you know, made up of whatever. That's dichotomy. I would say that biblically mankind is primarily represented as a unity. Now, this, this stuff gets complicated, you know, but let's look at a few scriptures here. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. So God took some dirt and he made us. Okay, he made a man out of the dirt. So you got a pile of dirt there. I don't know what its shape was like. <laughs> he just made a perfect little man, a dirt man. Here's a little dirt man. And then breathed into his nostrils. The breath of God comes into this dirt, and it became a living creature. Now, the Hebrew word translated creature here is nephesh. That's the Hebrew word for soul, often translated soul. But it simply means a breathing creature. All right, so you got dust, you got breath, and now you got life. Now, Vine's complete expository dictionary of New Testament words defines nephesh this way the essence of life, the act of breathing, taking breath. The problem with the English term soul is that no actual equivalent of the term or the idea behind it is represented in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew system of thought does not include the combination or opposition of the body and soul, which are really Greek and Latin in origin. All right, so man's composed of dirt and then the breath of God, and not a combination of two or three separate entities, you know, a body, soul, spirit. I think this helps us understand death, because if you take away the body you got death. If you take away the spirit, you got death. All right? You got nothing. You don't have a living creature anymore. I think it's with Genesis 2-7 in mind that the writer of Ecclesiastes says, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, those who hold to a dichotomy position, they point out that the immaterial part of people contains not only soul, and spirit, but also heart, and mind, and will, and consciousness, and even kidneys. All right, there's verses that use kidneys as, you know, part of man, and they're not talking about your actual kidneys, you know, they're talking about the emotions, all right? Mark 12, in Mark 12, God commands us to love Him with all our heart. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What's missing? No. What? Spirit. Yeah. Well, why doesn't he say spirit? Shouldn't we love God with our spirit? Why would he leave that out? Well, in other texts, Paul refers to the body and spirit, but doesn't mention the soul. For example, Romans 8.10. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So here he defines man as body and spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the, spi- except the spirit of the person which is in him? So you have the spirit in the man. And then in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So you have the spirit in the man. And here you have the two again. You've got body and spirit. Now look at uh, verse 5. He says, You are to l- deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here the flesh is destroyed and the spirit is saved. 1 Corinthians seven thirty four, And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, people. That's, good. That's a good thing. <laughs> it's just saying that the unmarried woman, she didn't have anybody to take care of, so she's just all about the Lord, all right? So he talks here about being holy both in body and in spirit. So in our text, he says, your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming. I think it's clear that both soul and spirit are part of the things he wants sanctified. So my understanding is that Paul's not giving us here a technical description of the nature of man. Rather, he's emphasizing that the sanctification at the second coming will be entire. Your entire person, it involves all of you. So I believe that man is a body, dust, and spirit, breath. And if I had to pick one, I guess I would lean more towards a dichotomous position. But if you hold a trichotomy, we can still be friends. Okay, it's not a big deal to me. I think there's much here that we don't understand about the nature of man. And like I said, the Hebrews, from what I can understand, they viewed man more as, as a unit, as a one. As, you know, They didn't divide him up, your spirit here and your body there. It was just when you put the two together, you had a man. If you separate them, you had nothing. So, again, there's much we don't understand, but if you want to hold a trichotomy, this is, this is your verse, so memorize it. Mark it down, <laughs> okay? It's the only one you got, all right? He says that they'll be kept blameless. All of you will be kept blameless. The whole man, the word blameless here is amemtos, and it means free from blame. It's an adverb, and it modifies the verb kept, which is tereo, and it means to keep, to guard, to watch over, to keep, to hold, to preserve. Blameless is only found here in the New Testament, but it's been found in a lot of inscriptions in Thessalonica. You know, they found it in different things. So they were familiar with it. And it has the idea of free from blame or accusations and moral purity. And it possibly reflects the Old Testament term blameless that meant free from defects and therefore able to sacrifice. It was something that was suitable to give to God. It was blameless, all right? So Paul prays that the Thessalonians will be blameless at the coming of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now the word coming here, parousia, 
This has been the theological focus of this whole book, and I hope you picked up on that. I mean, every chapter Paul ends with talking about the coming of the Lord. This is the sixth time in this letter, in just five chapters, that he mentions the coming of the Lord. The parousia literally means presence. And by metaphorical extension, it conveys coming. To the disciples, the parousia of the Son of Man signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship, His glorious appearing in power as the Lord. So at the coming of our Lord, the Christ, should not be understood as until the coming, as the King James translates it that way. The focus is the believer's spiritual state that is made at the time of His coming. In other words, when the Lord returns, you're made perfect. Okay? That's going to happen when He comes. So when was the parousia to happen well he doesn't have a time thing here but he says your whole body soul and spirit so i guess they figured they'd be alive when they came the body is still going to be intact but if we go back to chapter one he tells the the thessalonians he wants them to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come so they're to wait for him and i think this is clearly a reference to the second coming at the end of the age Nobody questions that. They read this, yep, you talk about the second coming. So the Thessalonians were waiting for Yeshua to come from heaven at his second coming. Wait here is from the Greek word anameno. It's found only here in the New Testament, but it occurs four times in the Septuagint. Anameno is from ana, which means upon. And Vine's expository dictionary says it intensifies the meaning of mano, which is abide or remain. It conveys the meaning of expectant, Waiting. Sustained, patient waiting. It pictures an eager looking forward to the coming of the one whose arrival was anticipated at any moment and whose coming was to be expected. Now, BDAG in the lexicon says to wait for, expect someone or something. So, the Thessalonian believers of Paul's first letter were waiting for the second coming of Christ. They're waiting for Him to show up. Should they have been? Well, if the Lord has not returned yet, as the majority of the church believes and teaches, over 2,000 years later, why would they in the first century be eagerly looking for Him? Isn't that kind of dumb? Well, let's go out and eagerly look for something we'll never see. They eagerly look because they expected it in their lifetime. Why would you wait for something you didn't expect to see? The view that the church holds on the parousia is at odds with Paul's teaching. So who got it wrong? Was it Paul or is it the majority of the church? You know, the church at large is still waiting. 2,000 years since it was prophesied to have happened, and they're still waiting. But Paul said the first century believers would see it. So who's right? Paul or the church? And before you answer that, let me just let you in on a little secret here. Paul probably got that from the Lord. Because the Lord taught that too. So now we've got a real problem, okay? In Matthew 16, 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come. This is talking about his second coming. He's coming with his angels and the glory of his Father, and he's going to repay people 
He's bringing his rewards. So this is clearly a second coming passage. Again, no problem there. The problem comes in the next verse. Truly, I say to you, not you, them. Okay, the you is the disciples he was talking to at that time. Now, that's simple, right? But so many people mess that up. They say, I say to you, and they're, oh, he's talking to me. No, he's not talking to you. He's talking to the disciples who were standing there. He says, there's some standing here, some of you guys, will not taste death. You're not going to die until you see me coming. So some of you, gonna, some of you that are standing here will see the second coming. You're going to see it. That's what he's telling his disciples. So let me ask you again, who's wrong? Is it Yeshua and the New Testament writers? Or could it maybe be the church? And people have trouble with this. They're like, oh, the church can't be wrong for all these years. Pfft, really? Have you ever heard of the Reformation? <laughs> Why do we have the Reformation? Because the church was wrong about salvation, which is much more significant than what we're talking about. But they're still wrong on this. I really think that anybody who's a serious student of the Bible will sooner or later come to realize there's a problem with Yeshua's predictions on the parousia. There's a problem there. Either he did that, like he said he would, or he's a false prophet. Something's wrong. And that's why the liberals attack us and say, that Bible's a joke. He said he was coming. They taught he was coming. See, they see that. He didn't come. Christianity is wrong. And, you know, the dispensationalists get around it other way because they stop the clock. Wait, wait, wait. He said he was coming, but time out. He's going back and he's going to deal with the church for a while. And then he's going back to Israel again later. We'll, we'll start the clock. So the clock, so soon just, the clock stops. So soon can be a long, long time until the clock starts again. That's where the dispensation, that's how they got around it. At least they're trying, okay? Because, I mean... You got to deal with these time statements somehow. But almost all mentions in the scripture of the parousia have a time statement with them that indicate when it would happen. So if he didn't return in the first century like he said he would, he's a false prophet, and that is a serious problem for all of us. Okay? He kept his word. That's exciting. All right, but the problem is we're still hung up looking. For the physical. That's what the church is hung up on. We want to see these things physically. All right? That's the same problem the Jews had, isn't it? Why did they reject him in the first coming? They wanted a warrior that would take over and defeat Rome and set them free. They wanted a military leader. So, this Yeshua is talking about spiritual things? We don't want spiritual things. We want physical. Church today, same thing. What, he spiritually came and you know, destroyed the old covenant and brought in the... Uh, we don't want that. We want a new earth. Okay? All right, let's move on in our text. The next verse, verse 24, he says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The work of salvation that was planned in their election and affected in their calling and conversion will be brought to completion at the coming of of the Lord. He says, He who calls you. This always refers to God the Father. This verse refers to the believer's election plus their glorification. It focuses on the faithfulness of God who initiates and perfects. He who calls you, He's faithful. He will do it. He'll do what? What's He going to do? 
He's going to sanctify you completely. That's what he said. He's going to sanctify you completely. He's faithful. Guess what? He will do it. The faithful God will sanctify them completely at the parousia. This reminds me of what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 1. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, salvation, will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Yeshua the Christ. Same thing, saying the same exact thing. In each of these verses, he mentions God's initiative in our salvation. He effectively calls us, and every time the divine call is mentioned in the New Testament, it refers to God's effectual call of his elect to salvation. What God began in the election and the calling of the Thessalonians will be completed at the parousia, when the Lord returns. Then he says, brothers, pray for us. You know, Paul concludes his prayer for them by asking them to pray for Silas and Timothy and himself. Paul felt a need for prayer. In almost all his epistles, Paul was asking the people to pray for him as he mentioned how he was praying for them. So unlike many believers today, Paul believed in prayer. And he did, he's always saying, pray for me, pray for me, pray for us. We pray for you, I pray for you constantly. It's, it's a big, prayer's a big deal for Paul. He believed in it. I think we need to make it a bigger deal in our lives and be calling out to God. You know, we get too hung up and I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how it works either. I know God told me to do it. Okay, so what do you need? A great explanation or you just need to obey the Lord and, and pray for others, okay? And, and it's hard to pray for people and not care about them. It's just hard to do that. The more you pray for people, you get involved, you feel involved in their lives, you start really caring. He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. He says, yes, Gary, this applies to you. The who, where, and how of the early church's use of this type of greeting is really uncertain, okay? Now, Paul encourages other churches to greet one another with a holy kiss, usually in connections with exhortations about being at peace with one another. This practice is still done in churches, for example, in Greece and Rome, they kiss each other on both cheeks, all right? It's kind of a greeting, and I'm sure you've seen that. Some cultures, just they just do that, all right? Um, some of that holy kiss, they say, was discontinued because of cultural misunderstanding by the pagans. I don't know that I buy that. You know, pagans don't get what we're doing, okay? So what? Now, in our American culture, it would be greet each other with a holy hug, okay? <laughs> or a holy handshake. That's more of a custom in our country. It, it's the same idea. We're, we're saying, you know, I, I'm greeting you as a brother and a sister in Christ. I love you. That's the idea of it, okay? It's, so we're not, we're not going to holy kisses here, okay? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to skip that part, okay? <laughs> In verse 27, he says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. What's interesting here is the narrative changes here from first person plural to the singular. What happened? Paul probably took the pen himself like he talks about other places. Paul had bad eye problems. He, already, he had an amanuensis wrote write down most of these things, but he would take the pen at the end, the quill at the end, and say, you know, this is my handwriting, I want you to do this, all right? That's probably what's happening here. In the first two requests, he used the imperative mood of command that's common throughout this last section. 
But here he switched to a formula that basically consists of placing somebody under an oath. And this is a good translation, ESV. I put you under oath. It's horkidzo. It means to adjure, to cause or call something to swear, to bind by an oath. The language here is exceptionally strong. Paul wants to cause them, and who's the them? I put you, who's he talking to? Who do you think the you here is? I think the you here, listen, whoever the you is, they're to, he's putting them under oath before the Lord to have the letter read. So I think the you here is the leadership in Thessalonica. I'm putting you, church leaders, I'm putting you under oath. You guys need to see this happens, all right? I want you to make sure this letter gets read before the congregation. Why the intensity? I think because Paul knew the importance of the truth he presented in this epistle. This is God's Word, and it's God's Word that transforms lives. So Paul's saying, you make sure you read these letters. And you know, what's interesting is, Often when the New Testament talks about Scripture, it's talking about the Old Testament Scripture, the Tanakh, all right? Because New Testament hadn't been completely written. But Peter viewed Paul's letters as Scripture, and he says that in 2 Peter. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote. So he's talking about Paul in his writings, according to the wisdom given him, as it does in all letters when he speaks in them, these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. In other words, sometimes, you know, I'm having a hard time understanding what Paul's saying here, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So he says they twist scriptures and they're twisting Paul like they do other scriptures saying what Paul says is scripture. That's what Peter's saying here. And Paul is, was writing Scripture, although at the very beginning, you know, they didn't understand it. Now, the word for read here, read to all the brothers, anagonosko, it's often used of public reading. Now, since this is Paul's first letter, the first letter that Paul wrote, there's no yet established custom of reading these letters, so he's trying to get this Established. You've got this letter. I want it read publicly. Now, the elders, obviously, the letter came in. The elders would have gotten it and read it. I want you to read it to everybody. I want everybody to hear this. This was something that Judaism did all the time. They read the Scriptures out loud. And Paul undoubtedly believed that this was imperative, so the church began to do this. And they would read the Scriptures to hear what was written because it had come from the Lord. This is the Word of God, people. This is important. We are to be reading it. We're to be sharing it. We're to be reading it out loud. We're to communicate what God has said. Because it's the Word of God. It's important for us. So he's literally taking these elders. Listen, guys, I'm putting you under oath before God. You make sure this letter gets read. Because he knew he was speaking the Word of God. Then he says... The grace of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ, be with you. Nearly all Paul's letters begin and end with the idea of grace. The word grace means free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. Human merit plays no part in man's salvation. 
That makes men mad. <laughs> I don't get it, but it, it makes them mad. Now, I think you understand that, but do you understand that as Christians, we're also we're not only saved by grace, we're to live by grace. All the Christian life, everything about it, is a matter of grace. We're brought into God's eternal kingdom by grace. We're positionally and practically sanctified by grace. We're motivated to obedience by grace. We receive strength to live the Christian life by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. The entire Christian life is lived by grace. And several times in Scripture he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you want to be on that humble side so you can get the grace that's coming from God. To live by grace is to live solely by the merit of Christ. To live by grace is to base your entire relationship with God, including my acceptance and standing with Him, on my union with Christ. To live by grace is to recognize that in myself, I bring nothing worth to my relationship to God. Because even my righteous acts are like filthy rags in His sight. So to live by grace means that we understand that God's love is not conditioned by our obedience or disobedience, but by the perfect obedience of Yeshua the Christ. Thank God for His grace. It's all about grace, people. We're recipients of that grace, and we're to live and walk in that grace by everything we do. And I think the constant injunctions that he gives grace to the humble is enough for us to realize that we should not be proud or act proud before God or others because God resists the proud. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great epistle, Lord. I've so enjoyed spending time in it. Such a focus on your return and the nearness of your return. Thank you for what we learned from this time, Lord, and I pray you'd prepare our hearts for to move into the second letter that Paul wrote to them and to learn and to grow. And Father, just thank you for the privilege we have to spend time in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. Life-changing, Lord. Thank you. Amen. All right, it's January 8th, right? So hopefully you're keeping up with your Bible reading so far. We're only a week in. Don't give up, okay? <laughs> It doesn't, I think it takes like 15 minutes a day to go through that Bible reading program. Now, everybody reads at different levels, and hopefully you're not just flying through it, trying to read it to get it over with. You're trying to understand what you're reading. Problem is, too often you get, oh, this makes me think of something. And you go over here and you start studying. Pretty soon it's a couple hours. Okay, but that's all right. Don't let that bother you. You spend all the time you want in it. But just, um, if you're too busy to have time to read, you need to reevaluate your life. You really do. Did you have a question, Dora? I just wanted to state that Shelly posts it on her Facebook every day. That is so helpful. Really? Okay. Yes. Thank I you, Shelly. I told Cheryl about it, so she asked her to be her friend so she could read it. Okay, so yeah. every day she posts a Bible reading for that day? Bible reading for the day, yes, and she'll even put day six, day whatever. Yeah. See, Facebook can be used for good things okay <laughs> i'm sure there's people in the comments want to argue about it or something but you know that's great amen amen and you know it just needs to be it needs to be part of our lives people it really does and the more it is i think the, the better off we're going to be as people before god because what's better than to know god
Uh, Doug asked, did Samsung and the saved thief on the cross experience progressive sanctification? Well, no, because I said progressive sanctification was for the transition saints. Okay, so they, now they were made perfect at the parousia. They received ultimate sanctification. You know, the dead were raised at the resurrection and they were made into the image of Christ. So they were perfected. Yes, the Old Testament saints were perfected, brought on a shield, moved in the presence of God in AD 70. It was righteousness Christ. They looked forward to it. We look back on it. But we have everything right now. They waited. They looked forward to All right, questions, comments? Holy mackerel. <laughs> Dana asked, and I'm not sure I understand. Wait a minute, is this all one thing? Okay, this is this is long, um, but this is political. Yeah, I'll get back to that on that. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, this is political too, but <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the writer confidential, but. They said this, all right, the Q proof, the Q proof that I read, they said Congressman Good from VA was the last to turn to make the vote happen. The post says good win. Second line, win when. Third line, 15. And that doesn't make this was written in 18. January 7th. 2018. That should make you think about something, okay? And if it doesn't, I don't know. What? Yes, the vote was, it happened on January 7th. Like I said, it's a five-year delta to the exact day, which, again, I'm like, I'm just baffled, okay? I'm baffled, but I'm also excited because when I see that five years was predicted, here it is, exactly good win. Win when? 15. One thing I like that Q says, the military is the only way. In other words, the only way this country is going to get straightened out, the military is going to have to take control and straighten it out. Okay, if he's right then, is he right about that? We'll find out. From Brian W. in Georgia, doesn't Hebrews 4.12 also kind of talk about spirit, soul, and body, joints and marrow? That would seem to me trichotomy. Yeah, people will use that verse, but it, you know, there's separation there, join and morrow, and, and I don't think that's, try, again, I don't think they're trying to give us the nature of man. I don't think that's the issue. And again, it doesn't matter to me, okay? You are what you are. <laughs> again, I'm just trying to say that biblically you can't say spirit means this and soul means this. And so therefore you're kind of left hanging or making something up, okay? And they do make stuff up. They say, I think it means this. Okay, well, that's nice what you think, but, you know. Norm says the word your is plural, 
the whole assembly. The words spirit, soul, and body are singular. This has absolutely nothing to do with the makeup of man. The spirit of the assembly is the character. The soul of the assembly is its life. The body of the assembly is the sum of its members. Until the parousia, I'm in left field. Am I in left field? I don't know. You might be, but there's a lot of other people out there with you, okay, if you are in left field. <laughs> Junior from Canada says, let me apologize in advance. God willing, one day we will come by and visit you, and I will greet you with a holy kiss. <laughs> Warn me, Junior, before you come up, okay? <laughs> Oh, I understand, though. I I do understand what you're saying. Michael in Colorado says, Were all the saints resurrected at the parousia in Israel and elsewhere? Ed Stevens teaches a rapture then. There must have been some Christian saints elect that lived through the parousia. Yeah, I don't I don't buy the rapture theory. I don't think that we were sucked off the, you know, the earth. The believers were sucked off the earth at that time. Um, who was left then to carry out? I mean, the church is beginning here. This is the, the completion of the church, right? We're, we're now consummated, and we're to carry out this, and there's nobody to do it. Oh, we, all our relatives left. Let's see what that means. Uh, sorry, I, I just, no, I don't, I don't buy that. I think the resurrection that took place, it wasn't a visible thing. People didn't see it. Graves weren't open. They didn't disappear out of the grave. It was a spiritual thing that God moved the dead believed in him into his kingdom from then on anybody else who believed in christ died would go into that kingdom now i'm saying i don't believe that doesn't mean it's not true okay i that's just not i've read ed's book a couple times and i just like no i don't buy it i mean okay that's my position doesn't mean it's wrong gary and chris and pa sent me a picture of the brian bible mug (laughs) All right, Gary. Good job, brother. All right. I think we're done here. Let's get the band back up here and our singers, and let's close with a song this morning. Uh, This is... I don't know who this is from. They don't say, but they said... The church in America doesn't preach preterism because there's no money in it. <laughs> they can't keep a roof on their building and the carpet on the floors if they don't keep the congregations looking for a future return. There might be some truth in that. I think a lot of people are hesitant to come out with it because it would cost them too much. Okay, You could lose, you could end up with a church like, say, 20 people or something. I mean, who would want that? <laughs> bottom line is people God is faithful and we just have to you know I think anybody that would would teach differently than what they believe why would you do that if you see this trust God but I've had preachers tell me I I just I got too many people at stake in this ministry R.C. Sproul told me that he says I have a hundred families that work for me in this ministry and I said that's very pragmatic okay But whose job is it to care for these families? You or God? And so you're not going to teach what you think is the truth? Because I think R.C. Sproul believed it. You're not going to teach it because you're worried about, where's God come into that? I'm sorry, I don't, 
have a lot of patience for pragmatism like that, you know, because you either trust God or you don't. Sometimes you've got to step out. But God is in control. I can guarantee you of that. So, wow, these things just keep coming in now, okay? Yeah, okay. Will conference sermons be available online? Well, you're jumping the gun there, but yes, they will be. <laughs> they definitely will be. We put them up last year, and we will do that from now on. Um, after the fact. After the fact. Okay, they won't be live, but they'll be after the fact. 